This morning's scripture text is Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could not wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Let's gather our congregations together downtown and up there at uh, Roseville. So let's all pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, scattered across the city now, as it were, we are bowed in prayer. And we are a needy people in a needy land. And I ask for your help as I undertake now to open Romans 9 and then 10 and 11, God willing. Father, there are things in this chapter that have caused people to soar in worship and to walk away from you. And so I pray that our portion would be the soaring in worship and not the rebellion. I need your help, Lord, to do it in a balanced, biblical, humble, loving, pastoral, courageous, prophetic, soul-saving, justice-pursuing, missions-mobilizing, Bible-saturated, God-centered, Christ-exalting way. Who is able for these things? So come and be my helper and be the helper of your people gathered in Roseville and gathered here downtown. Through Christ I pray. Amen. There are two experiences in my life that make Romans 9 one of the most important, if not the most important, chapter in the Bible in shaping the way I think about everything and in determining where I have been led by God to minister, namely at Bethlehem. One happened in seminary and turned my mental world upside down and one happened in the fall of 1979 and resulted in my quitting as a teacher at Bethel and becoming a pastor in this church. And I want to tell these two stories. And the reason I open in this autobiographical way is not because it really matters what happened to me. It really is neither here nor there what I think about anything or what I experienced about anything. I tell it autobiographically because the doctrines of Romans 9 are about life. 
They're about choices that you will make behind which you will never turn again. You come to certain points in your life in crisis and you know that if you cross the line, you'll never go back again. And you need to know that that's what we're dealing with in Romans 9. This is not just about controversy. This is not just about intellectual thought. It's not just about doctrine. It's about what will happen to your life because of a vision of God and a vision of salvation that's in this chapter. When I entered seminary in 1968, I believed in the freedom of my will in the sense that I thought it was ultimately self-determining. I hadn't learned that from the Bible. I had absorbed that from the self-infatuated, self-exalting, self-esteeming, self-sufficient air you and I breathe in this country every day. That's where I had absorbed it. It isn't in the Bible. Not one verse teaches the self-determining will of man. But I believed it, just like most people believe it. The sovereignty of God meant to me, he can do anything with me, I give him permission to do. That's what the sovereignty of God meant. And with this frame of mind, I entered a class on Philippians, taught by Daniel Fuller. And I entered a class on the salvation of man taught by James Morgan, who died of cancer while I was at Fuller. In Philippians, I hit head on verse 12, chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then I hit like a brick wall, the ground clause for God is that one who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Beneath my willing is God's willing and beneath my working is God's working. The question wasn't, do I have a will? The question was, why do I will what I will? And the ultimate answer not the only answer, was God. Then I entered this systematic theology class with James Morgan. We dealt, as all systematic theology classes do, with the doctrine of election and grace. Romans 9 proved to be the watershed text in that class, I ran into these verses in chapter 9, verse 11. Though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Before they'd done anything good or evil, 
in order that election might stand. Esau was made subservient to Jacob. And it raises the question of the justice of God. And therefore, in verse 14, we read in that class, and you can read right now in your Bible, is there then injustice on God's part? And he answers no, and he quotes Moses. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Which raises the question of his irresistible will, which Paul raises in verse 19. Why then does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And he answers in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Now, emotions run very high in a 22-year-old or 82-year-old who finds his man-centered world collapsing around him. So, one day, I met James Morgan in the hall, who was confronting me with these texts that were making me very angry and making me cry in the afternoon as I read my Bible. And I pulled my pen out of my pocket. And I stood in front of him, and after a few minutes of heated discussion, I held my pen in front of his face. And I dropped on the floor. And with far less respect than a 22-year-old ought to have for a teacher, I said, I dropped it. I dropped it. As though that would settle the issue. That there were no divine authority or power that might have somehow governed my dropping it. Emotions run very high when your world is collapsing. By the end of the semester, it was in ruins. And I wrote in my blue book, I can picture the place in the class where I was sitting, Romans 9 is like a tiger going about devouring free willers like me. And that was the end of my love affair with human autonomy and the ultimate self-determination of my will. And it was the beginning of a love affair with the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And I've been on a pilgrimage of discovery. I do not presume today to have arrived or to understand God fully by any means. He will always outstrip us. And when we think we've got him packaged well, he will burst forth. So don't presume that I come with all the answers. That was experience number one that happened in 1968-69. Here's experience number two. It was the fall of 79. 
I had taken a sabbatical from Bethel. I taught at Bethel for six years in the Bible department, teaching Greek and teaching Romans and First John and First Peter and books of the New Testament. In every class, not just on Romans, the question of God's sovereignty would come up. The question of free will would come up. And my last bastion of defense for God's supremacy in my salvation was Romans 9. And in class after class, many students rejected it out of hand, offering counter-arguments that my interpretation was not right. I served six years there. And you know what happens in your seventh year as a teacher? They give you a sabbatical. And I knew what I had to do with my sabbatical. I had eight months because I timed it to include interim and summer. And therefore I said, God, for eight months I'm going to look at Romans 9. That's all I'm going to study. And I'm going to write something at least that settles it for me. And this is the book that I wrote. It's in the bookstore. And it's tough sledding. So I don't necessarily think everybody should read it. This is of the doctoral dissertation kind of book. And therefore, it does not sell a lot of copies. But it is the foundation for everything, I believe. When I say the justification of God, I don't mean his justification of me. I mean... Paul's justification of him. Is there then injustice on God's part? Verse 14. And this is my answer. Now, I had no idea what God was going to do in those eight months. I thought this would happen. I aimed to write a book to answer for myself all the objections that are raised against the supremacy, sovereignty, authority, might, Freedom of God in Romans 9. I knew I was going to do that, God willing. What I did not know is what would happen six months into my staring at this chapter. And what happened was this. As I studied and analyzed this chapter, God spoke to me. And he said... I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I will be proclaimed. I and my sovereignty are not simply to be scrutinized. We are to be heralded. My sovereignty is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the triumph of sovereign grace over their rebellious wills. And that message to me was so powerful, I resigned at Bethel College. I was 34 years old. I had two children and one on the way. And I simply said, I must 
prove this vision of God in a people. Not a group of 18 to 21-year-olds ask the same questions every year in every class. I need a people. I need old people. I need young people. I need educated people. I need uneducated people. I need people of all colors. I need to prove whether or not this vision will cut it in the church. Whether it will work in evangelism. Whether it will work at the graveside. Whether it will work by the little baby who's dying eight months or eight days or eight hours out of the womb. I need to know. And... I simply went to the Minnesota Baptist Conference. Dick Turnwall was the executive minister. And I said, Dick, I'm resigning at Bethel. Would you help me find a church? And he called Marvin Anderson, the chairman of the search committee at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and said, there's a professor at Bethel who's resigning. Would you want to contact him? And I'm here as of the middle of 1980 trying to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples in Roseville and downtown. I feel about the doctrine of God's sovereignty the way Jonathan Edwards did. He's been one of my most important dead teachers. I want to read you his experience. Now, this puts it as bluntly and as forcefully and as painfully as any of you probably will ever experience the collapse of your world. From childhood up, Edwards writes, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to his sovereignty and his justice, thus eternally disposing and dealing with men according to his sovereign pleasure, but never could give an account how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time, nor a long time after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but only that now I further saw and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, in my mind, I rested in it. And it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this. So that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense in God's showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. The doctrine has often appeared exceedingly pleasant and bright and sweet. Absolute sovereignty 
is what I love to ascribe to God. End of the quote from Jonathan Edwards. Now, everything I've said up to this point could be a bit misleading. Because it might give the impression that Romans 9 is a treatise on the sovereignty of God and irresistible grace and unconditional election. And it isn't. Romans 9 is an explanation for why the Word of God has not failed even though Israel as a whole is condemned. That's the point of Romans 9. And we'll look at it in detail. The point of Romans 9 is not to give a dissertation about the sovereignty of God. It's not to give a dissertation about his freedom and his absolute right and power to dispose of men as he pleases. It's not about irresistible grace. It is answering the question, has the word of God fallen when the covenant people are damned? That's what Romans 9 is about. So... Let's get an overview of the chapter because if you loved Romans 8, if Romans 8 is the sweetest, most precious chapter in the Bible to you as it is to me, it will fall if the covenant people are lost. You have nothing to bank your hope on if God doesn't keep His promises to Israel. And it doesn't look like He keeps His promises to Israel, according to verse 3. So let's start at verse 3. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that is, Jews, now, the point I'm drawing out at this moment is not his anguish. We'll get that next week. Full force. Right now, the point is, why? Why so much anguish, Paul? Answer, they're accursed. They're cut off from Christ. And I would, if I could, take their place. That, if you don't get that, nothing in this chapter will make any sense at all. My kinsmen, my Jewish kinsmen, the covenant people. And then he lists all the advantages that they have. And we'll talk about those next week. They're lost. And if they're lost, what becomes of the covenant of God with his people? I will be your God. You will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Paul's answer comes in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the main point of this chapter. All the other doctrines are brought in to support that statement. Because if that statement is not true, Romans 8 is worthless to you. 
Oh, it's so hard for us non-biblical, non-Jewish people, just school and saturated in American thinking instead of this biblical worldview. For Paul, the lostness, the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people was an absolutely cataclysmic problem. And when God rejected them and introduced his times to the Gentiles and Jerusalem was trampled to dust in 70 AD, it was an absolutely staggering theological problem for the Old Testament God of faithfulness. And to this day, it's a problem. Why, oh why, is the gospel preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles and the church swarms with Gentiles? And the people, the chosen people, stiff-arm the Messiah. This was a cataclysmic problem. And if it could not be solved, everything he wrote in chapters 1 to 8 is worthless. Because if God can't keep his covenant and bring to pass the salvation of his covenant people in the Old Testament, how's he going to do it for his covenant people in the New Covenant in the New Testament? we got nothing to stand on if the covenant with Israel collapses. We're just Johnny-come-latelys. Salvation is of the Jews. We're grafted into this tree. If this tree is dead, we're dead. Paul's explanation for how the word of God has not fallen is given in the second half of verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The word of God has not fallen because the covenant promises don't apply to every individual Israelite. They are not all Israel. There's an Israel and then there's an Israel. There's a true Israel and there's an ethnic Israel. He says it again in verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh. In other words, just an, an Ishmael or a Esau. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded. Regarded. As descendants. Not all the children of Abraham are the beneficiaries of the promise made to Abraham. Well, who are those who are the beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham? His answer is the children of promise are the beneficiaries of the promise. Hmm. Do you see why he has to take up the doctrine of election? Some Jews are the ones to whom the covenant promises applied. And others weren't, even though they were children of the flesh. And so he gives his explanation in verse 11. Using Jacob and Esau as an illustration. Though the twins were not yet born, 
and had not done anything good or bad. Now, there's the unconditionality of election. And here comes the reason for it. So that God's purpose, according to election, and stumble over whether your word has choose or election, it's all the same thing. So that God's purpose of election or purpose according to election or according to his choice would stand. That's his goal. And then here comes the word, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Notice he does not say not because of works, but because of faith, because not even faith is a condition for this choosing before they were born. Not because of works, but because of what's contrasted with works. Him, the caller, before they were born, says the elder will serve the younger. Which, of course, raises the question of the justice of God. It is amazing, is it not, as you work through Romans 9, that Paul is not surprised by a single one of our questions. He pre Empts our questions by asking them for us. This is an amazing chapter. So verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You haven't thought of any problem that Paul didn't deal with in his life. He heard all the problems. And he wrote these chapters to respond. Verse 15, he says... That God has freedom to have mercy on whom he wills and compassion on whom he wills. And then he repeats the absolute unconditionality of who the beneficiaries of promise are in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Which, of course, raises a question. Why does he still find fault? Verse 19. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? The answer to that is nobody. Which raises the question, why does he still find fault? All right. Now, all we've done is set the agenda for the next several months. And here are the questions. If only some are beneficiaries of the promise in Israel, who are they? Well, they're children of promise. Well, if those are chosen unconditionally and freely according to the election of mercy, is he unjust? And if your answer to his injustice is he has freedom to have mercy on whom he wills and compassion on whom he wills, and we can't resist his sovereign will, then why does he still find fault? And those are the questions we'll be trying to answer, because Paul tries to answer them. I don't think he blows off any of those questions. If you come this morning deeply deeply hurting over those questions like I was when I when I said that I cried in the afternoon I meant I cried 
I would go home from classes for about six weeks, put elbows on either side of the Bible, and weep my eyes out over the collapse of my vision of God. So I'm not in a hurry with any of you. If you want to take 20 years to work on this, that's okay. I just plead with you, don't throw Romans 9 away. There are gems, there is foundation, there is gold, there is solid meat for your soul. Don't choke on it. Take little teeny bites. I know that I'm dealing with a lot of people here and there. And they're all over the map theologically and in maturity. And we're supposed to be good shepherds and not choke babies on meat. And yet, Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. I don't think he wants me to skip these chapters. I think that would be wrong. I just need your help to pray for me that I do it with pastoral wisdom and sensitivity and biblical balance, taking all other texts into proper consideration as well. The reason this is so important for us, the issue of election, the issue of the human will, the issue of divine justice, the issue of human blame and God's sovereignty, the issue it is so important for us is because all of these doctrines are brought in precisely to support verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has fallen. If the word of God falls in dealing with Israel, it's going to fall in dealing with us. If we don't have an answer how the mass of Israel can be so resistant and so unbelieving and so unresponsive to her Messiah that God sent to her in order to make her his people, an everlasting covenant, if we don't have an answer for that, we don't have any answer for why we should trust him with our covenant. Why this table that we're going to eat in just a minute should have any bearing on our life or any security for us. And so oh, I hope you feel the practical nature of these verses. Remember what you were promised in chapter 8. And remember that chapter 8 depends on solving the problem of chapter 9. You were promised that he will work everything together for your good. You were promised that the predestined will be called and the called will be justified and the justified will be glorified. You were promised that he will not withhold anything good for you. He will give you everything because he did not spare his own son. You were promised that he will not let anything separate you. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Nothing can separate you. I will keep my sovereign, persevering word with you. Oh yeah? What about Israel? So do you see there's a connection here? Romans 9 follows Romans 8. Because the precious promises of Romans 8, blood-bought promises, blood-bought promises, hang on God's faithfulness to keep His promises. And if He didn't keep them to Israel, there's no reason He should keep them to us. And therefore, Romans 9 is gospel. It's gospel ground. It's holding up the glorious things we love 
about our forgiveness and our justification and our perseverance and our glorification and our everlasting happiness with Jesus. If we're going to count on these things, at least Paul believes, you've got to come to terms with the unbelief of Israel. And all of chapters 9 to 11 are devoted to that problem. Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11 are all about the unbelief of Israel and how we Gentiles relate to that and how they later, there's a future. If you stick around a year and a half, you'll hear it. I figure that's about how long it'll take us to do these three chapters. There is a future for Israel, physical, ethnic Israel, I do believe, but I'm getting too far ahead. Let's pray before we separate from one another. Oh, Father in heaven, for the folks gathered there in Roseville and for us gathered here, I pray that all that I have said would be taken by the Holy Spirit and put gently, healingly, firmly, patiently into the minds and hearts of our people as we embark on the study of these chapters. In Jesus' name, amen.